Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Human Factors Cast. This is episode 233. We are recording this live on January 27th, 2022. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by Mr. Barry Kirby. Hey there. Great to be here. It is great to be here. We are fairly low energy tonight, but we will hopefully bump that energy up through the roof as we talk about the topic tonight, because it's actually really interesting. we got a great show for you tonight. We'll actually be talking about learning at twice the speed. So I'm going to talk really slowly, so that way, if you are listening to this at twice the speed afterwards, my words and Barry's words are much clearer for you to listen to. And later, we're going to be answering some questions from the community about our happiness in the field of human factors, how we organize our interview data, and we'll talk about the jump from a junior role to a mid-level role. But first, we have a quick programming note here or a community update for you all. Once again, I'm going to plug our uh, Human Factors Cast Digital Media Lab. Um, we have a lab where we are experimenting with different media for digital outputs. So what that means is we are experimenting with blog posts, podcasts, um, different ways to interact with the human factors community online. If this excites you, if you have ideas, uh, please reach out to us. We are always looking for more people to join this lab. And uh, we've kicked off 2022 with a couple really interesting work threads. So stay tuned for that. Uh, but we know why you're here. You're here for human factors news. So let's go ahead and get into it. That's right. This is the part the part of the show all about human factors news. Barry, what is our news story this week? So this week we're talking about how much do students learn when they double the speed of their class videos. So recorded lectures have become a routine part of course instruction during the COVID-19 pandemic. And college students often try to pack more learning into a shorter span by watching these recordings at double their normal speed or even faster. But does comprehension suffer as a result? According to a new UCLA study, the answer is, surprisingly, no, up to a point. The study, was shown, the study has shown that students retain information quite well when watching lectures at up to twice their actual speed. But once they exceed that speed, things then get a bit blurry. So the strategy of speeding up videos may not be effective with the especially complex or difficult course material, the researchers, uh, the researchers noted. So, Nick, are you a double speed consumer or are you a single track person? I am a double speed consumer. I listen to everything, if I can, at a higher speed. Uh, and this is largely because I value my time. And when I consume these things, I want to consume a lot of it. And so when I listen to podcasts, it's at twice the speed or sometimes slightly higher. It really depends on the hosts of the podcast. Um, and we can we, we'll talk about our experiences. But yes, I am a more than one times speed person for everything. Barry, are you a more than one times speed person? No, I'm not. I'm, I'm a I'm a I'm a single speed, mainly because I find that there's a there's a level of depth that you lose. And I, I want to get engaged with the with the host, with the with them and, and what is it, you know, their nuances and things like that. That's as there's a level of richness there that I think you lose when you speed up. And fundamentally, I just think it sounds a bit weird. Um, I just don't, I just think that, that the sound just doesn't work, work for me. Um, something about this article as well is like, you're, you're, I also wonder, but what about the other side of the, the equation, the, the lecturers or the people who are making that sort of stuff? Um, if, are you, if, if you're listening to this at twice the speed, um, you know, you're only getting half as much of us. Um, is, is that quality quality for you? I don't know. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think I've never actually tried it that much in terms of uh, getting stuff in. Um, so maybe it's something I need to experiment with to see whether it works. But fundamentally, if we pair, if we pair this back, um, is this actually a thing? Can you actually learn um, this quickly? How do, do Can you give us some insights around around the e-learning maybe? Yeah, so I want to I want to quickly jump on one of your points really quick here. So I think you you mentioned the medium and and sort of what the I guess creator thinks of people enjoying their content at twice the speed. For something like a podcast, we put this on every week. I don't care if people listen to this at 
at two times the speed. In fact, I encourage it because we sit here for an hour. And if you can get that done in half an hour, then you are getting our full conversation about today's latest news uh, in in a half an hour. And, and you know, that's your time for something like um, where, where maybe you're not learning or you are just enjoying something. So like a television show or a movie that I can see uh, being um, a little bit more strict with. Yes, I want people to watch this at at one times the speed, because in instances where there's an awkward pause or tension between characters, I can see that uh, playing differently when it's not in real time. And so if it's a piece of art, I feel like you are then um, getting outside of that two times speed. But yes, we are talking about learning specifically with this. So let's use e-learning as kind of a basis, right? And there's some research on e-learning. Um, and we're talking about e-learning here because in this study, we're, we're talking about learning at twice the speed. And you can't really do that in a controlled way other than looking at videos and playing them back at different speeds. So let's get into it. There's a couple different, I guess, takeaways with e-learning. Maybe we talk about those at kind of a high level here. Generally, I think e-learning as a whole is more effective than many people realize. And I think as we're starting to um, experiment with some of these hybrid situations where you have students at school in the classroom and e-learning and they're kind of switching off, there can be, you know, obviously, I guess there's no real substitute for being in-person, hands-on learning in a classroom environment. I think that we can all agree that that is probably the most effective, although I'd like to talk to a researcher on this. Mm, mm. But we're, we're talking about e-learning and it can still be effective when done correctly, right? Yeah, there's some research that suggests that um, when you are using video instead of the usual form of teaching, you might get a slight bump in grade, but nothing significant there. And it all depends on how people learn too, right? Uh, if they are kind of doing a video lesson in addition to an existing class, you have a greater impact, almost a full letter grade. And then when you have um, it's sort of when video learning outperformed in-person learning, um, there's kind of larger implications here about uh, flipped learning or remote learning and in-person lectures. So there's, there's still some inconclusive evidence about that. Um, but I think generally it is it is effective and it might be more effective than people realize. Do you want to talk a little bit about why it is effective? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I did some um, lectures more recently and I did did the same course. I think we might mention on a previous episode. I did the same course um, twice. I did one in person and then one remote. And it was interesting that the you know the the ability to engage people in person on on that topic was was um, easier than doing that online but then when speaking to the lecturer he he was very much in favor of some of them the, some of the things that they just know that they have to get some of the facts some of that is easier to do and more consistent to do via video than um that it was him standing up and giving that lecturer time and time and time again because he was you know affected by all sorts of things if he was having a bad day then the you know uh, his own energy didn't go into the uh, into the into the learning the same way so, but in terms of why is video learning effective, as long as you've got the, the, the learner there, they can control uh, the learning material. They can work at uh, the pace that they that they want to. They can, um, if they want to miss something or they don't get something, they can go back and refresh it. Or they can, as we've talked about, m maybe um, consume it faster than than anybody else. Um, and also, we th there is research that suggests that humans are hardwired to learn best when they're looking at both auditory and visual information and be able to correlate them together. Um, there is uh, that question around, can video learning be effective for teaching skills as well as facts? So skills, obviously, we, we talked about um, muscle memory and things like that. Um, so, but they do think that, um, that video learning is effective for teaching more complex skills and behaviors. Um, do you want to talk about this next point? Because I have no idea what a K-12 student is. Yeah, we'll get to that in just a minute. I, I want to break this point down a little bit. Have you used e-learning to sort of, uh, I guess, learn a skill? 
like watch I'm a YouTube video to like like for woodworking or something. Yeah, I I have, and it's but I don't know whether it's. I was trying to think about this because I I've con at the moment certainly consume a lot of um, uh, things on like um, forging, which I'm done yet. But the the woodworking one, there's um, the John Malecki, um YouTube channel, and I watch a lot of his stuff around how because he's very good at teaching. I think, or explaining how he does stuff. And I was trying to just, whilst we were talking about this, I was trying to work out, is that, am I just picking up the general things as an instructional video almost about what he's done and the steps he's taking? Or am I taking on board the skills he's doing about how he does stuff? And I'm not entirely sure because I don't get to go and do exactly the sort of things that he's done. I only sort of do an approximation of that but maybe that's enough i don't know what, what do you think have you have you taken on board any sort of a uh, audio visual material to into for skills rather than behaviors rather than just uh just knowledge and facts yeah and i think you have a very good point here when talking about skills versus facts and where is the bleed because i think for me you know i've, I've learned um techniques from these YouTube videos or, or online courses or anything. And I've learned like coding from these and that's a skill. And so I, I feel that in some cases, knowing the technique or learning the technique is learning the skill where, you know, there, there are fact-based things too, right? Like, um, like let's just take a, this is a very obscure example, but your worm saw, you know, your worm saw won't go unless you oil it and that you need to oil it. Now, how to oil it, that is a procedure that you need to perform on that worm saw, worm drive saw. And so you need to, you know, kind of take out the pieces and parts in a certain order. And that is a skill. So you you look at the technique and then, but the fact that you need to do it is the fact part of it. I don't know. That's, that's one example. There are other examples. So you know, there's there's somebody who might teach counseling, and uh, this is a firsthand account from one of the uh, sources we have here. Um, it's really hard to demonstrate proper counseling in a lecture because you can't bring a client to do that in front of a group of 400 students. But if you do, and if you do role play, that seems kind of contrived. But when uh, this person has created videos of counseling sessions that can be much more real, they can be practiced. They can really focus on what th that uh, teacher yeah. is is trying to do. You can much more easily stop them, sort of annotate the video live in the moment, or not live if we're talking about a video playback. You can annotate it um, and and really sort of note some of these important parts of the skill and say, "Hey, did you notice here how I use this type of question?" And so, so I think that type of learning for these complex skills can be effective okay so just to <laughs> almost a counter uh counterfactual almost to a certain extent so recently i've as i've sort of mentioned before i've got into american football and the only actual sport i now watch and the rams are in the um in the final four which is very exciting i've been trying to work out how they play and because of, i've watched some of the videos on it um i'm still not convinced i could go out and be the next quarterback or the next whatever um, just by watching them videos because there's clearly a load of skill in that that gets you up to that level very and they make it look easy but again maybe that's not because it's not an instructional video as such I don't know it's um, I think there's some things that are, it's around you being able to mimic what you see when you're watching the video so counseling you can get yourself into that that zone of yes you can see it re repeat it do it but if you're watching something that you can't necessarily repeat, I, is that a good instructional video? We've probably lived that quite a long time now. I just it's because it's interesting. Um, do you want to pick up a pick up another one? Yeah, you you mentioned the K twelve students. I'm going to talk about this briefly. So here in the states, we call it K twelve, and this is just like I, I guess primary school. It's it's um you know from kindergarten to twelfth grade. Right. So this okay, is yeah. okay. Got you. Children yeah. from the age of four or five all the way up to the age of eighteen. Um, and they are learning their skills. And so there's there's not really evidence that would support either way that this would be um, detrimental, I guess, or, or it wouldn't be not that, sorry, the e-learning would not be applicable to these groups. Um, and so I guess there's 
there's still more research that needs to be done. It's just a point that we want to talk about here, especially as we're talking about e-learning and at least in this context, it's college students uh, mm-hmm. with the article that we're talking about today. But I do want to mention the K-12 thing. Um, do, uh, do you want to talk about some of the limitations? Because I feel like you are pretty heavy on the limitations and I, I think you want to pick them it, apart. It's not necessarily the, the limitation. <laughs> I think it's just, I think having a thorough understanding of, of the value of, of video and sometimes we can sort of see it as a, certainly what's came out of the pandemic is we think it's going to solve everything. It's like, no, no, there is, I think it's used in the right place. It's a really, really good thing. So the thing that we don't know is just, is how that work, how it all works in practice and, and how it works, I guess, around the world. So if you look at, we've talked about um, equality of, of opportunity and things like that in the past. What about places that don't have good access to internet, good access to, you know, because you, you do need a certain level of, of of technology to make sure that you can access access this type of stuff, particularly if we're going to change the the speed ratios of it, because you can't really do that with a, a bog standard um, VHS or Betamax um, video player. It's you're, you're looking at a digital, you're looking at YouTube, you're looking at that sort of thing to be able to do that. Um, and then the education system this year is seeing really so many learners don't have the privilege of high-speed internet. And because normally with you've, you've got multi-student families as well, because, so that you've got, it's not just one student trying to consume um, video data, it's multiple um, siblings within, within the same home, maybe even parents trying to work as well. That you, We don't necessarily have that full speed of internet that we can make that work with. So... I do, there's not it's not a one size fits all at the moment um we can't get to everywhere we can't get to everywhere we can't get to everybody um but it's certainly starting i think the we can't argue with the fact that a lot of a lot of students and a lot of um, educational org- organizations really stepped up to the plate when it came, when the uh, pandemic hit and generated an awful lot of uh, video material which fr- saved a lot of children's education um because otherwise they wouldn't wouldn't have had anything um, so I, I think that it's, it's we, we're still in a very much a learning time. And I think coming down to the pandemic, I think we'll see that balance of um, that hybrid learning. And we'll, we'll, we will find more, da- more, more real data, um, real, real life experiences um, about that. Do you want to talk about how educators respond um, to this research? Yeah, so there's some, I guess, you know, there there's... I guess from from the perspective of educators, right? There, there are certain things that you can take, certain uh, measures that you can take to kind of up your game, right? So, as an educator, you can sort of improve the quality of your videos that you are um, sort of making for your classes or your YouTube videos or whatever you're doing, right? So, I think in terms of this, there's there's some skills that you can learn, like editing um, and sort of making sure that the content there is focused and uh, I guess entertaining in a way. So that way people retain it better. Um, There's also marginal upgrades that you can make. So like better recording equipment, high quality camera, teleprompter, these types of things. Um, And uh, you know, in one case there's, there's an educator that's sort of embracing a flipped classroom. You know, there's, um, they go on to write that my classes no longer have anything that looks like a lecture. He says the classes are all students doing things, students hands-on making mistakes, getting feedback, trying the things they've just seen online. And so very much relying on a community, or I guess if this educator is putting them together themselves, uh, sort of providing resources and having them test those skills in a real environment. And I think, uh, that's a really, really important note is that when you're trying to teach skills, you still have to practice them, but at least you know the techniques. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a really important thing to note. Uh, you have two different types of, of um, or class progression types. You want to talk about those? Yeah, just really briefly. I think the, and it relates to kind of what the, the notes you were just making, because we've got to remember that um, if we are trying to push people forward, do they work together as a group or do they work together on their own? So there's in sort of educational terms, there's this idea of uh, variable mastery fixed time, or uh, which really means that you've got a fixed time, a fixed period of time 
to get across a certain amount of content and the group or the, the individuals will take on a certain amount of knowledge. So the 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 very the, the mastery will change. They'll, they'll get to a minimum standard. Some will become better than others. Or but the, the main thing around that is that it's the time that's fixed. So you're you're with it for a term, two terms, three terms, whatever. Or you the flip side of that is actually you can work on your own and we you're aiming to get to a certain level of mastery. So a fixed mastery and you will stay in that course for as little or as long as it takes for you to do that. Um, and so that's fixed mastery variable time. What we're talking about with the videos, I think really lends itself to a fixed master, mastery variable time because you are in complete control of the sp speed and pace of what you're doing. You can um, whittle through videos really, really quickly or you can do it really slowly. I struggle to see how you can do that in more of a group session. Um, how do you get that value of, of, of group working, of that sort of engagement? I think there's, there's a part of it you can use it as preparation. You can use it, that type of thing. But it's if you go too far along to the video side of things, then do you lose um, that collaborative side of things? So again, just goes back to that. How do you get that balance right? What about your experiences with, I mean, we've talked a bit, a bit about it already, but the um, how have you consumed at, at, at double speed? Um, and what, what sort of things does that lend itself to? Yeah, good, good, good uh, getting back on track. We talked a lot about um, sort of e-learning, and I think that was a good primer because let's get back to the original article about the, the two times the speed. Is it effective? Is it not? And yes, let's let's talk about our experiences with two times the speed before we get into that. So for me, I listen to podcasts at twice the speed, sometimes higher. I listen to YouTube at twice the speed sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess it's, it's hard to quantify when I make that decision. I think it's more um, when I'm looking for information, I do it at twice the speed. When I am uh, sort of watching a tutorial, it might be, it might, I might even slow it down depending on how complex the task is. Um, I think the ability to control the speed is a huge boom though. I think that's that's a great thing to have. Um, I haven't done any online conferences or any, or sorry, uh, sorry, and online classes with this, but I have done things like conferences. And that's also something where I will go back and watch at twice the speed. It is information wow. that I am taking in and there's no live component on a pre-recorded thing. And so I'll, I'll go back and watch it at twice the speed. It doesn't bother me. Um, you have a couple examples here too. Do you want to talk about what you use two times speed for, if anything? Well, yeah, I was, I almost sort of um, use them examples of, of things I don't. Um, so again, so podcasts I do at single speed um, because I think it goes back to what you said almost right at the beginning is is that I almost consider them it's not just knowledge; it's the art form. Um, and I think there's there's a level of, of that type of thing. So one of the things I'm trying to do at the moment is is learn Welsh. Um, and I couldn't do that at, at twice speed, even if I want, I can barely do it at single speed. Um, but that ability to control stuff is really useful because again, you just mentioned it about slowing things down. Um, being able to control that sort of thing in Duolingo is, is, has been really, really useful. The other bit um, I was sort of playing around with was how do we do, how do we deal with things on, on hybrid? So I'm going to be going to do a, a lecture in a couple of weeks to the engineering community and they've just dropped it on me that it's, it's going to be a hybrid. So I'm going to be sat doing the live, a live stream. Um, but also there's going to be people, people in the room as well. So that's almost going to be quite hard for them because for the people who, want, who would want to consume it faster, then they just won't be able to, because we haven't to keep, um, we haven't to keep the, 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 the speed the same because it, because I'm also presenting it live to a, a live audience. And I'd be interested in your thoughts on that, whether we should be bother, bothering with the whole hybrid stuff at, at all, or should we be doing it twice or, you know, do it live and then release it uh, as a thing? Yeah. I mean, for me, I, like, look, my ideal scenario, since there are Zoom calls that are recorded all the time now, is <laughs> you let the Zoom call happen unless you need to be there for input and then you watch it afterwards, right? Like, that is kind of how I operate. Uh, for certain calls, right? There's there's calls where I don't need to necessarily be involved with the discussion, but I'm I want to be aware of that, and so yeah. I'll watch those after the fact at twice the speed, and that saves me time because I'm still consuming the whole thing. I have time for other things now. 
Um, and I didn't have to sit through the whole thing live. In terms of, you know, your example, I think for the people, you know, if it is recorded, then the people who want to be there virtually just listen to it afterwards mm. uh, at twice the speed. Um, but that's my thoughts on it. Now, let's get back to this article here. I thought maybe we could glance over some of the studies, how they did this exactly, um, and kind of what the difference is between them. So I'll start us off here. This is this is done at UCLA. So kind of uh, gen- general college student population, right? Um, basically, 85% of UCLA students uh, surveyed reported they speed watched lecture videos. Um, and so the researchers kind of engaged them on a series of experiments to see how these fast speeds engage or sort of affected learning and knowledge retention. In the first experiment, uh, they kind of looked at 231 undergrads into four groups. They had them watch two videos that were 13 to 15 minute lectures, one on the Roman Empire, another on real estate appraisals. Uh, one one group watched at normal speed, one at 1.5 times the speed, one at double speed, and one at 2.5 times the speed. Um, and they were instructed not to pause the videos or take any notes. Um, so already it's kind of an artificial environment. That's that's kind of one of my observations. So after these viewings, they kind of looked at the they looked at comprehension tests to see how much they understood from them. Uh, Twenty multiple choice true or false questions. Normal speed group averaged about 26 correct answers out of 40 double time group scored about 25. So it's about, it's about the same as the 1.5 speed group. Um, and then, uh, and then for the 2.5 speed group, they didn't do well. They did 22 questions correctly on average. So, um, I guess the significant difference is anything above two is where it starts to decline. Mm-hmm. Do you want to, uh, do you want to talk about this next part here? Yeah, so the interesting bit about that was then a week later, the same groups were given different tests related to the two videos to assess what they'd retained. So then the normal speed group averaged 24 out of 40, the 1.5 speed and double speed group averaged 21, and the two and a half speed students averaged 20. So surprisingly, video speed, we can see, has had actually little effect on both immediate and delayed comprehension until learners exceeded twice the normal speed. So that's quite an interesting piece. I mean, actually overall, what maybe a thing that they don't mention is actually they're still not getting very high scores anyway. Out of 40, they're still only getting around half of them um, or just over half of them correct. So um, maybe that's the choice of of subject, the Roman Empire and real estate appraisals. Maybe maybe if it was the... um, um, Star Wars trilogy might be might be different, um, but they also looked at a few other bits as well. I don't know whether you want to um, quickly mention the the other bits that they looked at. Yeah, so they they looked at some other uh, combinations, I guess, of speed watching and normal speed viewing of these two videos. Um, again, I just want to mention that none of these are being compared to in person. That's not what we're looking at here. We're looking at just whether or not online learning can be affected by this. And so I'd imagine in person, you might see a slight bump to those answers. That's just two cents. So, so they looked at sort of the, the, um, twice at double speed, once at normal speed. Um, so they kind of had one group of students watch the videos at double speed twice in succession and another watched them just once at normal speed. Um, and both groups uh, answered about 25 out of 40. So there was no difference watching it twice at two times speed or once at normal speed. You're getting the same content twice at two times the speed, which would indicate that maybe there is um, you know, some additional information mm-hmm. that's being taken in there. There's another experiment that they did where they watched the videos once at normal speed while another viewed them initially at double speed, then a week later at double speed again, and then when tested a week after that, the first group that watched the videos um, and shortly after the, the second group viewed those videos a second time, the speed watchers performed better, averaging 24 out of 40 versus 22 for the one time normal group. So, I, again, I don't think this is a significant difference there, but still interesting to note that the, the double speed is performing well. You want to talk about the switching speeds portion of the study? Yeah. So the group that watched the videos at the normal speed, then at double speed, scored slightly better immediately after the viewings than a group that watched at double speed and then normal speed. 
So 26 versus 24. Um, so not statistically significant, but interesting. Um, when the other two groups followed the same viewing procedure were quizzed a week after watching, they both scored 25. So actually the longer term retention was exactly the same. Um, so when we look at this, people generally speak at a rate of 150 words a minute. And previous research has shown that comprehension begins to decline as speech approaches double speed around 275 words a minute. So, yeah, I mean, I guess maybe some of, some of this isn't um, um, isn't that surprising when you look at that 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 general factor in, in of itself. Yeah, uh, one one kind of last note for me over here. So this is actually a note from the researchers here. They said they were surprised and impressed that students could learn and retain this knowledge uh, at faster speeds. And um, they kind of sent a quote here. College students can save time and learn more efficient, efficiently by watching pre-recorded lectures at faster speeds if they use the time saved for additional studying. So that's the key here is that you are saving time, but you should use that to bolster what you've learned right? Um, but they shouldn't exceed double the normal playback speed. Their study didn't reveal significant drawbacks to watching lecture videos at up to double the normal speed, but they caution against kind of using the strategy to simply save time. Um, students can enhance their learning if they spend the time saved on activities such as reviewing flashcards or taking practice tests. So again, it's kind of how you spend your time. So you, you kind of get the content and then you use that remaining time that you would have had to bolster it um any final thoughts on this barry before we move on yeah i guess final thought for me really is it'd be interesting to know just how um men mentally fatiguing this is um so if again just going on that bit about around time if you if you consumed it at twice the speed therefore i would think that you're mentally work i'm to work harder to comprehend what's going on um do you need it um to use that extra time to then recover from that it'd be interesting to look to do i guess mental workload analysis on on that as a as an outcome but fundamentally yeah if we, if we can identify that those bits that um, are really good for for video learning and get that information across then let's make the most of the technology i'm in yeah if you've been listening to this at twice the speed let us know how that went in the comments or in our discord or wherever you can get to us. <laughs> but for now, I want to thank you, our patrons this week for selecting the topic. It was actually tied on Twitter. So our patrons selected this topic for this week. And thank you to our friends over at UCLA for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post the links to the original articles on our weekly roundups on our blog. You can also join us, like I said, on our Slack or discord for more discussion on these stories. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back to see what's going on in the human factors community right after this. Human factors cast brings you the best in human factors, news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce, but we can't do it without you. The human factors cast network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you as always to our patrons. We especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors cast staff patrons, Michelle Tripp, patrons like you keep the show running. Thank you for your continued support. I want to jump into Human Factors Minute. So this is something that we do for our patrons. Uh, and and this is something that I have a ton of fun producing on my end. This is uh, like like the little commercial there said, it's it's a standalone podcast where we break down interesting, obscure human factors topics one minute at a time. Uh, we have a hundred as of this recording, we have one hundred and seven episodes total time available for people to listen to is about two hours and eight minutes and three seconds. Uh, the average length of episode is about 72 seconds. So you're actually getting a little bit more than a minute a week. Um, and just a couple notes here. The first 10 episodes are available to everyone, um, as well as the Team Seeds minutes that we did as part of the Team Seeds effort uh, last year. Those are available to everyone for free. You can check out our Patreon to, to see those. Um, 
human factors minutes also on spotify if that's something that you want to do is is pay for it through there i don't know why you do that instead of patreon makes no sense to me but it's available you can do it um and it's it is the exclusive way to hear blake's voice at this point uh we're <laughs> we're still working on getting him back soon bear with us but it is the only place you can hear him for now because it's pre-recorded it's not live <laughs> so you can hear him there um and Barry, we got to get you on some of those human factors minutes, man. You're a permanent yeah. fixture of the show now, so we got to get you rolling. Uh, <laughs> all right, like I said, thank you to our patrons. Uh, if you're interested, check it out. Anyway, we got we, we let's get into the next part of the show. It came from. It came from. All right, so this week we. We got uh, this is the part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you topics that the community is talking about. That they are uh, raising their voices and and either complaining or asking or any of the above. We answer some of these in the pre-show. Anyway, if you find these answers useful, give us a like to help other people find this content wherever you're at. We have three tonight, so let's go ahead and get into the first one here. This is by Lion Turtle Land on the user experience subreddit. It's a fairly, fairly easy one to start us off with tonight, Barry. How would you describe your overall happiness in this field? And of course, we're talking about the human factors field here or UX or whatever you're in, right? Do you love what you do day to day? Do you have a good work-life balance? So do I love what I do today? Do day to day? Yes, I absolutely do. Um, I'm very lucky that I can... Um, running my own business i can focus that business in exactly where i want i can do the tasks that i enjoy doing and i can delegate the stuff i don't like doing um that's brilliant do i have a good work-life balance absolutely not um i am absolutely rubbish at this i'm very good at telling everybody else to make sure they take holidays they don't work too hard they take the appropriate time off if i think people are getting stressed out i'm very good at telling other people that they need to be able to chill and all that sort of stuff i'm really rubbish at doing it for myself um so yeah in short yes i love what i do no i have uh, i don't have very good work-life balance uh what about you nick well hang on there's a third question there are you happy oh am i happy oh yes absolutely um and i think that's where the where the privilege is isn't it it's the one of the things i think we are very lucky in working in, in this field is we have an opportunity to get involved in any project that really because every project every project involves people and we can normally um there's it's very rare we cannot make a difference a positive difference to um a project or a product or a, or a service so it's always good to be able to go in and, and be able to see tangible change because you've gone in and you've done something so um yeah i think um i think i'm generally very happy with what i'm doing yeah for me um in the past i've i've worked with personalities that have been difficult to uh, sort of work with, um, kind of expecting the impossible and had really poor planning. And so in that instance where you are working with individuals that maybe don't play to strengths of employees, I think that can be a situation where you can be unhappy. Mm -hmm. This is a field where I think you can be happy with what you're doing, uh, provided you do have that good work-life balance and you do love what you do every day. Right now, I'm fortunate enough to be in that position. I do have a great work-life balance. I think, um, you know, my employer gives us, uh, you know, every third Friday off. So that way it's a, a wellness day. And they they kind of make sure that we're taken care of. Um, really good insurance, you know, that kind of thing. So, like, the the personal life is is great. And I can, it's flexible. I can step away from the computer as long as I don't have a meeting and get back to it later. And so I can kind of spend some time with my son during the day, mm -hmm. which is invaluable. I love that. I love being able to spend time with my son. And then I can get back to work at night when everyone else is, you know, asleep and I can sit there and and knock away some of these things. As long as I don't have meetings during the day, I can do that. Right. Um, in terms of loving what I do, I do love what I do. I think I nerd out about data every day um, and I, I, I nerd out about talking to people about what they do on a day-to-day -day basis. I love learning about the domains that I work in and I love, uh, you have to have this sort of continuous love of learning and uh, sort of a, a continuous um, 
evaluation of what you know, because it always changes and the field changes and you have to be with those changes. So overall, super happy. But I have been in the situation where you can be unhappy and mm. that's not great. So just know that happiness is out there. And if you are unhappy in your role, maybe explore other options. That's what I'd say. Okay, let's get into this next one here. How to organize and share interview data. This is by Baranam2 on the HCI subreddit. What'd be the best way uh, or best tool to analyze and share quantitative survey data? I have data from 40 people and questions and answers from three different surveys. Uh, they were each given. I want to sometimes view the data of all three surveys for one particular person and then view how all 40 people are answered a certain way. So they're asking for a very specific answer here, but I, I'm going to broaden this and say, how do you organize your data generally? Do you have one spreadsheet? Do you have many spreadsheets? Do you have like, how do you, what's your process, Barry? Well, I'm, I'm going to coin the phrase of, well, it depends, doesn't it? Um, in the grand scheme of things, I, I think Excel is... Certainly for sharing data um, is is my go-to tool. I know that there's very, you know, much more sophisticated tools out there. Um, but when you can play with play with the data, generally, yeah, one core sheet, well, I say one core sheet with all your main data on it, and then use other sheets to then slice and dice, um, slice and dice the data. Um, and certainly being able to then have different sheets with your different charts on, so try and cluster them Plus, do the similar charts together, but have your fil filters on the charts, so then you can um, you can really um, look at that and 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 play with it. The more prep you can do in the background, and the more you can structure the the questions, so you can analyze them easier later on. Uh, the more effort you put in up front, the better the outcome is. So. I mean, obviously, by from this question specifically, they, they've already done done the data questionnaire. But I, the the more prep you can put in beforehand, will just um, um, just uh, give, give you massive outcomes. And the you know the the beauty of a good of a good pivot table and a good pivot chart it will work no end of wonders um, with it because it, you it just allows you to go into so much depth. I think. What about you? What, what's your what's your go to what's your go to um, tool of choice when you're doing this type of thing? Yeah, you mentioned it depends. I'm doubling down on merch tonight, so I have my it depends shirt under my human factors cast sweater. <laughs> <laughs> Bring that up. Okay, so in terms of how I work, so I think there's some interesting questions about this, and there's some, I guess, parameters that you need to understand before you consider what constitutes. Uh, I guess, an individual Excel file, right? I'm also an Excel person, although I have used Google Sheets and I I kind of um, am slowly switching to Google Sheets just because I have access to it everywhere. Uh, it's a little bit easier to navigate mobily. Um, anyway, the, the tool is irrelevant. What is relevant is how you organize your data. And so for me, I like to think about um, sort of a file, if you will, uh, per task thread. Mm -hmm. So let's say I want overall metrics of all the things I've ever worked on. Well, I might capture certain data about that, like where it was, who we talked to, how many users we had, where, um, I said where it was, you know, so, so, you know, some of these overall data points. And then, um, I think that might be one task thread. I'm not capturing all that data for you know, from every single thing and putting it into one sheet, that's overkill. Mm -hmm. But it, let's say, you know, I'm talking to users from a um, specific, I guess, group, that might be too resolute. I think what I would do is um, kind of combine, uh, like, let's say, let's say I'm doing a research thread of like figuring out what the best user interface for something would be <laughs> pretty broad right. uh, by, by design, yeah. <laughs> but, but multiple user groups interact with this interface. I'm going to, I'm going to put it all in one spreadsheet. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, just being able to sort and filter by the user group is going to be enough to get me the data that I want and compare across those user groups as well. It's going to be 
uh, it's going to be all really relevant as long as the tasks kind of match what you're looking at for that research thread. Um, once you go beyond that research thread, I would open up a new file and do the things there. Um, I don't know. It's, it's hard to, this is a good question because it's hard to quantify uh, from, from a research perspective, what constitutes a new spreadsheet. It is because um, I'm quite a fan of just for data not data protection, but for uh, making sure I don't lose the data. So I don't mean data protection in terms of like GDPR and that sort of stuff, but I mean, just, I don't want to lose the core stuff. I tend to put all of my core um, data that I've received into one sheet, one into one file. So multiple sheets within the same Excel yeah. file, raw data, all of it in there, then save that, make a copy and then start doing the analysis on the copy. Yes. And that I might do, I might start, you know, stripping out, I might have, uh, I might then sort the data into threads. It might be, in, you know, it might be a single interface or it might be a single um, scenario or it might be whatever it is, strip out the data that way. But I will always have a, um, what I generally call my uh, my safety belt. Um, it's all gone wrong. I've got a couple of copies of, of the actual raw data. I can start from scratch again because invariably you will end up putting some sort of really funky, um, um formula in that you end up pressing the wrong button at the wrong time yep. and and doing it so back your data up back the raw data up because yeah. um yeah the amount i've seen i mean thankfully it's only happened to me i think in 20 years it's happened twice um and only one of them was truly my fault uh the other one i fired somebody for um the um but it it, it happens and there's nothing worse than just going if only if only I'd just done that. Um, so yeah, don't don't mess with the raw data. Losing um, your data sucks. Yeah, badly. All right, let's let's get into this last one here. Uh, this one is by Delirium Rostello on the user experience subreddit. Uh, how did you prepare to make a jump from a junior role to a mid level role? Uh, they go on to write. Recently, I got a job offer. I will be taking it. Has all the good stuff. Seemingly good environment, reputable household name, brand, substantial jump in salary, work uh, with content I'm familiar with. It's a bit more of a mid-level role, though. And despite having a good body of work behind me, working with some very technical stuff, I'm slightly nervous about the jump from kind of sort of being mid-level to officially being mid-level was wondering how people planned for or experienced a step up in seniority with human factors or UX and what suggestions or advice they'd give for it. Uh, Barry, what was your jump from junior to mid like? Um, it was interesting. I think the, I, I was quite lucky that um, at the time, I, you know, I worked with a really good bunch of people. We were one of the lar largest human factors departments in the UK at the time and I was fairly it was my first official role as a, as a human well it was the first place that I worked that I'd officially got into the human factors uh, domain at that point and so I'd sort of I bounced quite a lot of my career up there and it was it was interesting because the everybody felt like they'd expected me to jump around the time that I, or before that I, I actually did so everyone else was like yeah it's about time that you about time you got that jump it was sort of expected but i sort of internally i and we've spoken about this in the past i do suffer from imposter syndrome a lot um and you you do sit there going you know th there was that worry that sort of well sh should i be doing this how am i going to look at it because sometimes the mid-roll doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be managing it just means you've got more more responsibility within a project when you you know you might be signing stuff off or you might be leading some bits but you might not actually have um staff managerial so some people automatically equate it with you know you're going to have a team and stuff like that that's not necessarily the case but you will have more responsibility and generally it's because you've got the experience to do it people don't you've got to remember that basically people don't promote you just for fun um or they shouldn't anyway because that's a cruel joke um you know, generally you've earned that um, promotion because you've shown the competence to be able to do it. So there is an there is an element there of just have, just having the, the confidence in being able to go and do it. Um, sometimes you just got to wake up in the morning and just give yourself that talk talking to in the mirror that uh, you are that great HF person and you can go and do it. Um, what about you, Nick? When you made that sort of jump, what what was it like for you? 
You can do it. I think, okay, so there's there's two, I guess, pathways that I can see that someone might be able to get to that mid-level from a junior level, right? You have sort of uh, promotion or, or soft promotion within a company that you've been working at, uh, kind of moving up the ladder. And then you also have sort of the... Um, jump from one company to another, but you're jumping up a level. Mm. And I think one is inherently more difficult than the other. I think the jump from company to company is going to be the more difficult option. So I'm going to talk about the easy option first. And this was my experience. So it it very much happens naturally in a, in a company where you are sort of putting forth your work. And what happens is they see your work and they say, okay, now I want you to tackle this aspect of a project. And that, that is really sort of the mid-level role. I think you uh, sort of enumerated it uh, quite um, quite splendidly. There's sort of, you're not managing people, you're managing a part of a project. And uh, whether that's like a task, a part um sort of an investigation into a piece of a project, you're still responsible for that. When you're taking on those responsibilities, you're no longer a worker bee. Um, You are now sort of taking that ownership of that thing. And there are consequences when you don't take ownership of that thing. That to me is mid-level. And that's easier to do when you're in a company and you have people that understand your skill set and can evaluate what you are uh, sort of capable of of, uh, tackling for that mid-level. Now let's let's look at the other direction, right? This is jumping from a um, uh, one company to another, but in that jump, you are moving from junior to mid, and this is a little tougher, but I think it's still doable, right? I think there's again, I think Barry, what you said is perfect. You know, they're not going to hire you unless they think that you, you know you're capable of doing the job. And so, as long as you've been honest in the interview process, and you think it's a good match i think you know there shouldn't be any issues um really you're going to be either taking on parts and pieces of the project you're no longer just a worker bee now you're sort of a manager of pieces and then um you know once you start getting to manage people that's where it gets uh, a little difficult um because that's even more senior level is when you're managing people and uh, processes and taking ownership of entire projects. It's it's um, that's a different jump and maybe a story for another day. But any other closing thoughts on that one, Barry? No, I think fundamentally it's um, it's possibly the most exciting jump you can make because again you you're you're not go, you're not getting to personnel management, which I think is a whole different um, tool set. It's a whole different um, capability set. But you're get you're getting to actually have real responsibility for for bits and you can see the return on that you either deliver you deliver it well or you don't um and and that's quite an exciting time you probably don't appreciate it at the time as much as you do when you fondly look back at it um but it is thoroughly make the most of it it's 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 a it's a fun jump to do yeah all right well let's get into this last part of the show this needs no introduction it's one more thing uh, barry what's your one more thing this week well, it, it was an interesting thing for me this week. So when we, so throughout the year, we have to do, I guess, as all of us professionals have to do uh, continuing professional development. So you record all the activities you've done in the year, your learning you've done. And through the CIHF, we get ours assessed. And you get, yeah, yeah you have the, um, the profile that you, that you, the amount of learning you've done and you've reflected on it and all that sort of stuff. Brilliant. And even though I'm an assessor, so I assess other people's CPD as well, um, I still get that nervous moment. So we, we have to submit it all by New Year's Eve, um, submit it then, and you've got January gets assessed. You still have that nervous moment of what happens if I haven't done enough? What happens if the, whoever's reviewing my stuff has thought, that just doesn't stack up? Um, anyway, I got my email, and thankfully, I've for another year, um, I've passed. I've pulled the wool over their eye. No, I've done sufficient amount of <laughs> CPD to make that work. It should lead me to a question, actually, because I know um, in the UK, we've got, uh, with, with the CIHF, it's a chartered body, so we um, are chartered ergonomists, and we I well, very great store behind that. It's, it's brilliant. But actually, do you think chartership means much outside of the UK? Because HFES isn't. Chart. So you, you don't you don't become a chartered member of HFES. Does anybody care? I don't do you think. I, I, 
I've never heard of it. And honestly, if I saw it on a resume, I don't know if I'd pay much attention to it. That's what I was thinking as well. Um, it's an interesting one. It's, it's, it's an interesting discussion to have because because it's the chartership is a fairly recent thing within within the CHO. Because I'm a chartered ergonomist and I'm a chartered engineer, which is also even more rare. Um, but in other exciting news, I'm going back to my getting two for one um, approach. Um, two more my, yeah, my um, took on a new member of staff this week. Um, it was my daughter. Um, I saw the picture on LinkedIn. That's, I know, it's awesome. It just feel, I've just worked out how to, um, rather than recruiting new staff, you just grow them. It's much grow easier. Them. You raise them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, teach so them from happy. birth to be a human factors. I've been teach, teaching her human factors strategies and skills since basically she was in the in the, in the crib, and now it's come to all that investment has come to fruition. So no, it was, it was a really interesting time. So she's um, she's starting with us two days a week in between now and her starting university um and so and she's doing three different areas of the business so she can pick some of that up it was just a really proud moment and um i i can't wait in fact i've, I've even written her into her first bid and so she she's more of an artsy background and we've just put in a proposal for a an arty piece of work so yeah if we get it then that'll be quite interesting that's awesome so what about you nick what's your uh, um one more thing this week well, last week, Barry, you and I had a wonderful discussion on the metaverse and what that all meant. And, you know, one thing on my list, uh, it's been on my list for a while. We talked about the Oculus Quest 2, right? And, um, well, it was my birthday this week, and I I went ahead and I, I got one. Yay! Yay! Yeah, no, it's, oh. it's cool. Um, so, so I'm actually really excited about it. Um, you know, there's... Now that I have it in my hands, I have a different assessment of the device than I did even a week ago. So I, I've been pretty positive on this device overall and still am. I think it, it does a lot for convenience of VR. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, 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 the um, I guess, markerless tracking and, and wireless headset is yeah. game changing. Like, it's I can't brilliant. understate that. Right. Now, there are some clear uh, said, I'm, I'm sensing a butt here somewhere <laughs> <laughs> there's some clear oversights with the product i think um i think th this is not a full review i'm not fully reviewing this but the, the the strap is lacking um you know i feel like there's stronger straps out there on the market and mm -hmm. uh, there's some other things like my glasses actually don't even fit uh in inside this thing very well i have pretty wide frames um yeah. and so they, they have a hard time fitting so I've gone and ordered myself a couple mods for it. So I have uh, custom lenses uh, with my custom Ooh. prescription on the way for this sucker. I've mm. also ordered a vent fan for the top of this. So that way, as I'm getting sweaty playing Beat Saber, it'll That's just suck all that fog right out. And then the third thing I got was a better head strap. And this is one of those halo head straps that kind of sits on your forehead and rests on your back. It has a battery pack on it, too. So it'll kind of counterweight this thing. Yeah. And it'll tighten around my head and my the back of my head, and it won't kind of leave pressure on my eyes. And so uh, with those mods, I'm hoping that this machine uh, becomes sort of my preferred. Um, it, it already is my preferred VR device. I'm really excited about it. That's my one more thing for this week. And that's going to be it for today, everyone. If you like this episode and enjoy some of the discussion about the psychology behind learning, I'll encourage you all to go listen to episode 223. That's where we talk about how AI can improve learning. Uh, comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week for more in-depth discussion. You can always join us on our Slack or Discord communities if you want to chat about VR with me. I'm happy to. Uh, <laughs> you can always visit our official website. Sign up for our newsletter to stay up, the up to date with the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there are three things you can do. One, leave us a five-star review. Two, tell your friends about us. Or three, consider supporting us on Patreon. We're two people away from being self-sustainable on Patreon. You could be those two. As always, links to all the socials and our website are in the description of this episode. I want to thank Mr. Barry Kirby for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about listening to this podcast at twice the speed? Well, they can go and find me on Twitter at Baz underscore K or go and hit my podcast at 1202podcast.com. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me streaming sometimes 
likely not for mental health reasons, but uh, across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning into Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.